it's the economy, stupid. That became a catchphrase of Bill Clinton's presidential campaign. Well, guess what? It's the economy, stupid, is back again because there's so many headlines in the, in the politicians' promises about health care, student loan forgiveness, minimum wages. It all comes down to your pocketbook and the economics. And I want you to understand it because when you go to pull that lever, you need to know all the implications of what that choice means. I'm Sarah Heiner. This is the Bottom Line Advocator Podcast. And don't forget when we're done to rate and review because that'll help the podcast grow. I'm Sarah Heiner, president of Bottom Line Inc., the number one provider of expert sourced, expert vetted, expert advice that empowers your life. And I'm thrilled to be talking today to Timothy Taylor, an economist, author, and teacher. He's the managing editor of the Journal of Economic Perspectives, and he's a lecturer for the teaching company. And some of his courses include America and the New Global Economy and Economics and Introduction, which is exactly why we're talking to him today. He's also the author of Assorted Economics Textbooks and The Instant Economist, Everything You Need to Know About How the Economy Works. You can learn more about Tim and his work at timothytaylor.net, and you can buy his book, The Instant Economist, which I highly recommend at Amazon and wherever fine books are sold. So Tim, welcome. Thank you for being here today. Sure, glad to. Well, I honestly think that this is one of the most important podcasts that we've done because economics, the economic issues are flying through the headlines. There are major implications in upcoming elections. And I'm not sure that people fully understand the, the background and, and what, what the real implications are of the promises that are being made. So today is about, it's education, but fun education. You're gonna, you have a knack for making economics approachable, even in your book, which is why I said I highly recommend it. So that's the goal of today. Ready? I'm set. Charge ahead. Okay. Well, let's start. Let's start with the word free. Now, free is in the direct marketing business. Free in marketing is one of the best words you can ever use because everybody loves free. And we're seeing it all over the headlines and all the promises of free health care and free education and free whatever else they're offering to give. Well, let's talk about the word free. What does free mean from an economic point of view? Well, Usually what free means uh, in political terms is that the person receiving the service doesn't pay an out-of-pocket cost for it. Of course, that doesn't mean that the whoever's providing the service doesn't have costs in creating or providing whatever the service is. And so when something's free, there's sort of a, uh, different effects for both buyers and providers. The, um, from the buyer's point of view, a lot of the time if something is free, you tend to take it a little less seriously or often overuse it. Um, for example, there's a lot of evidence in the healthcare world that people who have modest co-payments um, for their health care visits use about a third less health care than those who get it absolutely for free. But there's no health difference between the two groups. It's just that when something's free, you worry a little bit less about using it. Um, if I've heard of you know, people teaching in European countries where college is free. Uh, if you have a classroom full of students who didn't pay anything to be there, it has a bit of a different feeling than a classroom full of students where many of them you know, paid money, took out loans, worked summer jobs in order to be there. Uh, so from the demand side, you care about things differently when they're free or when they're not. Well, and also let um, me jump on that for a second in regard, with regard to healthcare. And you may not, I'm just, I'm just going to comment on this because sure. again, people, as you say, value things differently when they're free. So they also don't necessarily 
follow the advice. They went to the doctor, they got the prescription, but one of the big things in healthcare is the follow through and the compliance with whatever the information is. And does the compliance go down when it's free? That they go, they go, the doctor says do this, and they go, well, maybe not, because they haven't really you know, put forth their own efforts and cost. You know, they haven't paid in any way for that information and advice. Yeah, I don't know specifically about the follow-up. I do know that there's some interesting evidence. Um, if you go to, say, Florida and places where there's a big concentration of elderly folks, for a lot of them, between Medicare and, and various other programs, they, they pay very, very little for doctor visits. And you'll read stories about people who, uh, in Florida in particular, um, are having you know, 30, 40 doctor visits a year. It's sort of almost a weekly thing. And then in other states where, you know, people have to pay a little bit more um, for, for a visit, you know, elderly people are having, you know, five or ten doctor visits a year. It, it really does change your, your sense of how you're interacting with the service you're getting. Well, I've even heard people argue that sometimes free, uh, when people hear free, what they hear in their mind is low quality and I don't need to pay a lot of attention to it. <laughs> And, uh, and sometimes you're better off with a modest charge because then people take it seriously. Yeah, and I want to go dig, dig deeper into the whole healthcare, free healthcare, and, and the broad implications of that in a little bit. In a little bit, um, what about product quality in free? You know that. Well, the problem then on the other side is uh, if the provider is not able to get money from the person who's actually consuming it they have to get their money from somewhere else. Um, and often that would be through the government um, or, or through tax money in an indirect way. And so there's a different set of dynamics then, which is that do you want the provider of the good or service to respond to consumers who are actually using it, or do you want them to respond to the incentives of the government which is paying them? And often, uh, People, when phrased that way, you get a little bit less sure about how free sounds. I can give you a couple of interesting examples, but um, one is that um, the country where, which comes closest to free higher education right now is Finland, where something like 98% of the costs of higher education are paid by the government. Um, Finland also, though, because government is paying all the costs, very strictly rations how many people can go and get a college education. And so they actually end up with a lower share of people going to college than almost any other uh, OECD country. Uh, because, they, because, because it's free, then people respond to the government limiting things. Or you think about Well, but in that case United also, now, it, yeah. now it's competitive in that case so that people have to put forth effort. So they, they don't pay money for it, but they pay in effort and they pay in commitment right. for that education. And their options are, are limited in other ways. But, you know, you think about things like, you know, should, should, the, should a college or a university or the university system respond to what people say they want for higher education, or should it be responding to what politicians are willing to pay for in terms of higher education? And those two are not necessarily the same. There's going to be some overlap, but, um, but it can be a nice thing to have some response to those actually receiving the education. Well, yeah, and um, again, as you said, when, when the cost goes down, when they're not getting paid or they're, they're limited in what they're paying for the production of that product, I mean, I'm a business person. I know that if, if I get squeezed on what I'm able to, to charge for my goods, 
then I can't invest in quality. Like there, there's somewhere the money has to come out. Yeah, there's always this this unpleasant fact in economics that uh, <laughs> people hate to hear you say this, but you always end up saying like the money has to come from somewhere. The money has to come from somewhere. So that's true, but even more interesting than that in terms of free is the source of the money determines the source of your incentives. Mm -hmm. And so it determines who you're responding to. And uh, so I, as a local example, like around, around where I live in, in uh, Minneapolis-St. Paul, uh, lots of hospitals, for example, will open up new, bright, shiny maternity wards because they want to attract uh, pregnant women to come and have their children there, right? Um, but that's responding to customers. If the government was instead saying we're only going to open a maternity ward where, where and when we think it makes sense, uh, you wouldn't get all those bright, shiny, brand new maternity wards. It just wouldn't happen. No, not at all. But they also make good money off the maternity wards relative Absolutely. to the high cost. And they get money from serving the people who are giving people what right. they want. Right. <laughs> but let's talk about the money, though. So because, you know, there's this perception somehow we'll just pay for it, right? How are you going to pay for $17 trillion or billion dollars worth of, of free health care? How are you going to pay for all the student loan forgiveness? Well, somehow they think that there's there's this assumption that either there's enough money in the among the rich people to tax them or you can just print more money or it doesn't matter like where's where's the money like help, help understand what that pile of something is someplace and is it big well, enough well you you laid it out there's really three possibilities um one is that uh you raise taxes one is that you borrow more um, by running large budget deficits. And then a third would be that you just uh, have the Federal Reserve print money. Um, that The last argument, um, I know there are some people now who are taking it more seriously, and it's, it's gotten some, some run in the media, but, but I guess I have a hard time taking it seriously. Um, countries which you know, literally just print money do not have a good, strong economic history. Um, at the end of the day, uh, resources have to come from someplace. And, uh, and so I, I guess I really focus on either the taxes or the borrowing side of it. Um, and and let, let's just be clear. So you're talking about if the countries, if you just say, well, let's go print money because it's not like the, we have a gold-backed currency anymore. Right. So, so just go print more what the heck, example, but that increases um, inflation. Yeah. One proposal I, I heard half seriously was, I mean, maybe only a quarter seriously was, so, you know, the government owes, uh, you know, uh, a trillion dollars well why doesn't the federal government just print a trillion dollar bill and then it'll take that trillion dollar bill and and it'll use it to pay for that trillion dollars and you know we'll so problem solved right <laughs> um it's except that at the end of the day you know resources have to be provided somehow demand for them has to come from someplace and in a in a loose sense you can't just sort of pretend that that I pulled the buying power out of thin air. Um, you know, you, you can borrow money. That sort of means you'll be repaying it in the future. But literally conjuring it up out of the air is, you know, countries that have tried that have generally ended up with severe economic problems of one kind or another. Because once you've gone down that road, there's no limiting principle. There's no reason you should ever stop, right? I mean, why not just have zero taxes and get everyone everything and just create the money out of thin air? It's, it's, not, a, it's not a sensible way to think about the real world and the trade-offs that you have. I mean, well 
Borrowing money is a different issue, right? You could we can argue about whether the deficit should be higher or lower and the issues that poses, but but just just saying let's print a trillion a few trillion dollar bills is is not a serious answer to society's problems. Well, and I think it's important to understand that at its root, if I understand correctly, an economy has to have production. Right? So we can't just sit around and print money and then play monopoly with it. That Underneath all of it, it's a balance with the gross domestic production. What are we making? What are we selling? Or what natural resources do we have to sell? I mean, isn't that sure. part and of that formula? Sure. people say economics is, broadly speaking, it's the way in which any society coordinates all of its decisions about production and consumption. And, you know, we can coordinate them through a mixture of market actions or government actions, and we might disagree around the edges on what that should be, but... But as you say, just uh, conjuring out of thin air that there will be more production or there will be more goods, um, all of it needs to be sort of coordinated within some broader economic context. And uh, again, that doesn't rule out borrowing money for the future, but it does rule out just saying, um, I'm not even going to worry about any of these trade-offs and pretend I can have everything. (laughs) Exactly. All right, let's talk about some of the specific promises of free. So we talk, we referred to healthcare before. So let's start there because that's one of the biggest issues. And frankly, I think what's one of the biggest expenses and growing expenses on the government's budget is the rising cost of healthcare. And yet we're Absolutely. promising it's it for free. what's driving all the long-term budget issues is Medicare and Medicaid are really the, the two biggies. All right. So let's, so let's, you know, kind of high level healthcare. We've got the, the balance of, you know, economically, just at its basic core, does free healthcare work? And you and I had talked, you know, a couple of weeks ago when we kind of preliminar- preliminarily chatted about this. That even the socialized medicine countries, it's not all it's cracked up to be. That there, that they, there's yeah, trade-offs of it. The real, the, the underlying problem here is that insurance markets, broadly speaking, have lots of troubles, and that free markets and insurance markets often don't function very well. And one of the ways you can see that functioning happening across the economy is, for example, we require people to buy drivers, you know, car insurance before you get a driver's license. We don't say, you know, do you feel like it? What would the market offer? (laughs) Um, The whole idea of, say, Medicare is that if you ask the insurance market to sell health insurance to 80-year-olds, the price is going to be really, really high. And, and that market is probably not going to function very well in terms of providing insurance. Um, workman's comp insurance is a way in which we've sort of said we're going to force the, you know, force the government into providing that kind of insurance. Unemployment insurance is another. And so around the world, lots of countries took the next step and sort of said, um, look, health insurance just doesn't work very well, and we're going to take that out of the private sector too. Um, and you know, for some countries that's worked okay. The, the thing I, I emphasize, I guess, is that there are a lot of different ways of thinking about if you're going to have the government involved in health insurance, how exactly is it going to be involved? And how the government is involved in, say, Canada is really different than how it's involved in Germany and how it's involved in the UK. Um, I mean, people don't always know in the Scandinavian countries, like Norway, the out-of-pocket costs are often higher for people in Norway than they are for people in the U.S. Um, Yes, everyone's covered by the government, but how you're covered under what conditions and for what are really 
unnegotiable and extremely different across countries. So is there a um, lot of, we're, we're used to a lot of freedom of choice here. And are you and, saying and that in those countries this, there's not as much choice and the government is yeah, controlling and, what and again, treatments you can get, free, what tests? Then you're responding to government right. choices and the government budgets. <laughs> and we also have this weird history in the U.S., which goes back to World War II, right, where they put a wage freeze on during World War II and the labor unions wanted to get paid more. And so it was agreed that although wages wouldn't go up, they could get a raise in terms of employer-provided health insurance. And that was kind of the, the start of employer-provided health insurance on a large scale in the U.S. And so ever since then, while other countries have gone down a road of more government involvement, we've gone down a road of most people getting their insurance as an untaxed fringe benefit through their employer. And that's a, that's a really different model than most of the world has followed. Yeah. Now, one of the one of the knocks on the concept of free health care, and most people who are on Medicare, to you know, to give it credit, most people who are on Medicare are actually happy with it. Yep. So, um, but one of the knocks on expanding Medicare and having it be Medicare for all, although that's not really what it would be, um, is that you're going to have a supply problem in terms of availability of practitioners, and that a lot of doctors are leaving the the industry that they're not satisfied with the controls that are being placed on them at this present time and that extended into the future that you're going to have fewer doctors fewer services available people are suddenly going to have to wait even longer or have a harder time finding a practitioner than they do now what's your thought on that um well it is generally true that countries where health care is closer to free and think to the user and i'm thinking for example about the united kingdom here um or Canada is another example, although those are really different systems. About In the UK, I choose because they spend only about half as much per person as the US. Um, and so the question is, well, how, how do they spend half as much per person? And you know, a lot of the answer is they have a lot less availability of care and, and um, a lot less responsiveness to, to what consumers are looking for. So if you're looking for a knee replacement or something, you may have to wait a long, long time before you get it through through the UK. And what's a long, and, long time um, just to give... And those choices are just... Um, so again, it's, it's kind of like I was saying before, when the government pays for a large share of things, government budgets then control what's going to be provided, and the providers are going to respond to that one way or another. Now, I think, you know, the US system is large enough and bloated enough that you can sort of think of a variety of things that might be done to make it more cost-effective, but... In a lot of other countries, what they're trying to think about is how do we make our healthcare system more innovative? How do we make it more responsive? How do we make it, you know, respond more to what people want? And so it's fair to say that in some other countries, they're moving away from total government control and trying to think about incentives in a different way. Well, and in fact, you had mentioned to me that when the government is is in control of the money and that it's kind of a fixed amount of money, because of course they they then pre-negotiate how much the hospitals are going to get, how much the doctors are going to get, which sounds great, but you said even in the innovation area, the pharma innovation and the medical devices and surgery and all of that, that there's a lowered incentive to innovate. So explain that. Yeah, well, there's, there's got to be. I mean, I, one of the odd ways in which healthcare has evolved around the world is that the U.S. is the place for healthcare innovation. And, you know, it's a large, rich market it's a market which responds to incentives from private insurance, often employer-provided private insurance. And, um, and so it's the place where 
you can invest uh, in new drugs, in new treatments, in new equipment, um, and in all kinds of medical innovation, and feel like there's a reasonable chance you can get a good return out of it. Uh, if you, uh, if every time you had to invest in a new innovation, you had to think to yourself, I wonder if I can persuade a government agency that this will be worthwhile and worth spending additional money on. Your incentives for trying out that innovation are dramatically reduced. Now, there's some it feels to Americans, I think with some reason, like this is unfair. Why should the U.S. be the place where everyone's doing all this innovation and paying the higher prices for drugs and so on? Um, to you know, shouldn't the rest of the world pay their share? Why should they wait around and wait until successful drugs are invented and then sort of say, well, we'll buy that, but only for a much lesser price? And there is some unfairness to that, I think. Um, I, I wish other countries also had more active and aggressive biomedical research and development than they do. But, um, but overall, I'm, I'm just glad to have the biomedical research and development. I, well, I would prefer not to be in a world where that, the incentives for that are, are strangled everywhere. I would actually go the other way and say, wouldn't that be a source of pride for America? You know, again, back to the point of what's, what does the country produce, right? So, so the, the underpinnings of an economy of what do you do, what do you produce, what do you manufacture, what services? And I know, you know, the vast majority of our GDP is actually services, not manufacture or production anymore. But I would think that that's, you know, that's a stronghold that we have in our medical innovation that is then a product or service that we can export to the world. I mean, I think that's a good thing. And then the pricing issue is a whole other complicated discussion. Yeah, it. I mean, in general, it does seem like an, an option where the rest of the world has sort of left the U.S. to be the ones to take the lead. And, you know, taking the lead is... <laughs> Now, what do they always say? It's you can tell the pioneers because they're the ones who have the arrows in their backs, or something like <laughs> yes. that. You know, we're, we're the pioneers on that stuff, and so some things go well, some things go badly. But it's good to have some pioneers out there. It's good to have some innovators out there. And as you say, arguing over the the health costs and and the distribution of those costs and what we sell for, um, that's something where a lot of the world has taken a pretty hard stand. They're just not going to pay for things, uh, and. At some level, if they choose not to pay for it, there's not much we can do about that. I but, mean, that's but uh, then they have limited choice as well, right? If they don't pay yeah, for and it, that's, and that's those are you know sick people who aren't right. going to get certain treatments because the government isn't going to pay for it. And if other countries go down that road, uh, I, again, I would I would prefer not to go down that road myself. Yeah. Well, and again, back to the concept of choice. So they might continue to invest in large scale in heart disease or or diabetes, the uh, Alzheimer's, and kind of the biggies. But there's a lot of what they call orphan diseases and smaller diseases that may not get any attention whatsoever. Yeah, and in some of those cases, I think there can be a, a case for the government to step in some and say, um, like sometimes you'll get these things which are like prize competitions, where let's say the first person, the first company to come up with a, uh, you know, a workable vaccine for this or a workable drug for this or a workable treatment for this with certain rules and conditions, um, you know, we'll, we'll pay them a, a, a prize, you know, that will give them some additional reward for going and creating that orphan drug. The difficulty, of course, being you know, a lot of these orphan drugs are for relatively small markets. Yes, and, so, and super so high hard, price tags. It's hard to come up with an incentive to do it without some additional boost. 
Yes. Well, and you know, I know that it's been a big deal in the healthcare recently are these orphan drugs, but you know, when when some somewhere someone's paying for it, it doesn't matter. Nobody's, you know, incented to to make it efficient. All right, let's yeah, go ahead. The, the difficult part also that comes up with these orphan drugs is so imagine you're a company, you create some great thing for for a for a market that hasn't been served. It doesn't pay anyone else to try and invent something. So essentially, you have a monopoly on that little on that little area, and you can jack up the price quite substantially. And so there have been cases where, you know, in narrow markets, the price got jacked up quite a lot. And and I, you know, I don't have a problem in those cases with again the government saying, look, we'll reward you for the drug, but we're not going to just let you charge the you know the small group of people with this condition an arm and a leg and an arm and a leg we're we're going to put some some limits on right. that and uh again it's this case where in insurance markets where you're not quite sure how you might get sick where you might get sick what the treatments might be those markets are imperfect they're they're always going to struggle a little bit and so adjusting them around the edges is okay with me right okay bottom line on healthcare, we're looking at a trade-off of freedom of choice and options if we if everything is free we may have fewer options fewer providers fewer innovation but everybody will get it so that's yeah and again that you know some societies have made that choice and and you know as long as they're democratically elected and everything i say more power to them (laughs) yes exactly (laughs) but But that's uh, the whole point of this not the choice i would prefer (laughs) well the whole point of this conversation is for people to understand you know they're going to make they're going to go make choices at the at the polls so i want them to understand the richness of what those choices mean and what the implications are because it can't just be sounds great the word free awesome i'm not going to pay for it it's yeah and i i think you know again i i um i think one can make an argument that some some you know extremely high-tech care maybe you know hospitals and providers are a little too free with using some of that care sometimes because they sort of feel like the insurance company's paying so what the heck you know i'll i'll do the I'll do the, you know, multi-thousand dollar scan or the multi-thousand dollar drug and and they can be or you know just do a lot of extra tests maybe that aren't strictly needed. And so I I'm I'm okay with certain kinds of oversight of that and looking at it and seeing what best practices are and trying to figure out some more cost-effective ways of delivering care. I don't know that the system will do that all by itself with all these private insurers out there, but um but boy, you go all the way to government control that's a that's a different ball. That's a different ball game. That's a different setting. Right, and we all know how well the bureaucracies manage themselves in efficient ways. All right, let's jump to student loan forgiveness because that's another really popular topic that's in the headlines. So there's what about a million? Or I'm sorry, 1.5 trillion dollars in outstanding loans. Is that yep. the right number? Yeah, no, that's but, right. And, it's, and how big it's is a trillion? Now it's you how, know it's like, larger how you, than car loans. <laughs> yeah, how big is a trillion? Because it's just a word to people. Can you? Is there some way that you can help people understand how big a trillion is? Well, I I, I came up with this example a few years back. You can see what you think. Imagine that you um, go back a million seconds. Um, how long ago is that? And the answer is, if you work it out with your calculator, is oh. that it's about 30 years or something like that. So a million seconds ago is, is 30 years ago. Okay. A billion is a thousand millions. So instead of being um, 30 years ago, it's 30,000 years ago. That's and a trillion is, not, is, a, tr- is a thousand billions. Right. So it's not 30,000 years ago. It's 30 million years ago. 
Um, and so, you know, that's before the dinosaurs. Right. That's, so this, know, that's way back in time. So people need to understand. You're right, that we jump really easily between millions and billions and trillions. But these are factors of a thousand, you know. And so the difference between a million and a trillion is the difference between 30 years ago and the time of the dinosaurs. It's a huge difference. Enormous. And it's not, we're, we're not taxing our way out of that. <laughs> no. Um, and I think the real, to me, the most annoying thing about the, the, the stuff on student loans is that most of the people who have most of the loans, um, and in particular most of those who have the biggest loans, are people who took out loans to go to graduate school, often to become doctors and lawyers and things like that. And so when you talk about total loan forgiveness for everybody, what you're actually talking about is forgiving loans for predominantly people who have really, really good career options in front of them and are likely to earn a whole lot of money. And that's, uh, that just seems to me crazy. I mean, why would, <laughs> why, would you, uh, you know, why would you forgive loans for that particular group? The people you have some sympathy with, or I have some sympathy with, are people who, um, you know, took out smaller loans. They went off to perhaps a, you know, maybe a for-profit college somewhere that didn't have very good follow-up and encouraged them to borrow a lot. And then they were there for a semester or two. They didn't get anywhere. They dropped out, and now they still owe the money. And they might still owe, you know, quite a lot of money, and they don't really have any prospect of good career possibilities for paying it off or anything like that. And, and so those folks, I, I do have more sympathy with. Um, and if you could figure out a way to have loan forgiveness that was focused on those who never completed a college degree, dropped out fairly soon, and are being weighed down by you know, money that they probably borrowed unwisely, um, I would have more sympathy for a very limited proposal along those lines. So let, but, me, ask, um, let me ask you, you this. Know, the, the, big, the big forgive everybody everything just strikes me as uh, um, an enormous pander to people who already have really good economic prospects. Let me ask you this. So of these 45 million people and the $1.5 trillion in debt, they're spread across hundreds or thousands of, of um, schools, right? So it's not like... And, I, I apologize. I did not. I don't know where who owns all those student loans. So it's not like. So there's the option called the government will pay for all of it, which we can't do it. How come you can't just spread it back out? That if there are people that went to Harvard Medical School, let Harvard forgive that percentage of the loans, and if they went to University of Phoenix, let University of Phoenix forgive that piece of the loan, and spread out. You know, for all the people that think this is a good idea to forgive it, just. How, what would the economic impact be of that? So everybody gets so hurt a there's little. There's two parts to that, I think. One is that um, an over, about 10 years ago, we switched from a system where the federal government guaranteed loans for private lenders. So like a long time ago when I was in college, I went to my local bank. I said, I want a student loan. They said, sure, you know, here's the guaranteed student loan program. But I borrowed the money from the bank, and the government guaranteed it. So there was a risk to that, but I was repaying the local bank. For the last 10 years or so, the government's been loaning the money pretty much directly. And so it, it really is direct government loans to students, although they're handled by various financing companies and so on. Um, though what you're proposing, they sometimes call the skin in the game option. <laughs> and, and it would be, why is it that um, some for-profit should be able to, you know, maybe put on a lot of advertising that seems kind of deceptive and um, 
you know, get people to sign up and take out huge loans at age, you know, 18 or 19 or 20 when they barely know what they're doing. And then when those people drop out, um, that, org- that organization gets to keep the money. <laughs> you know, shouldn't that organization have some skin in the game? But not just private schools. Say, be... If a lot of people default, you, you have to cover it, you know, or you have to cover some share of it. And, um, and that would certainly help these institutions which are, um, you know, which are, uh, in dealing with these institutions, which are making a lot of loans that many students are not repaying, where the default rate for their students is really, really high. I mean, Harvard Medical School, there's no reason Harvard Medical School should ever forgive a single loan for a single doctor. I mean, they're Harvard Medical doctors. They're going to make a lot of money. Right. <laughs> so, you know, Unless we go to no government health care, but that's right. <laughs> Uh, I was going to say, unless we go to government health care, and then their their uh, income will be. Limited, <laughs> That's right. right. Then they may have a harder <laughs> problem, but uh, but they're uh, but they you know that th- those people do have enormous loans. I mean, I've I've seen more than one story about people you know going through medical school who borrow the money, and by the time they come out and they're done, you know, they may have half a million dollars in loans. But again, if you're going to make a a healthy middle six figure or higher income, that's an okay deal. Um, I guess that one other proposal which I've heard recently that I thought was interesting was, and this is what they've been doing in the UK for about the last 20 years now, is um, the government makes loans, and but the repayment of the loans is, as they say, income contingent. <laughs> so what that basically means is you agree when you sign up the lo- for the loan to pay a, there, I think it's 9% of your income or up to 9% of your income for the next 30 years. Um, and and if you own a lot, earn a lot, you know that's going to be a higher payment. If you earn less, it's going to be a lower payment. But you're just signing up for essentially, in a way, a higher tax rate on your on your income for the next 30 years. And after 30 years, whatever happens happens. And if you haven't paid it off at that time, they just write off the rest. Well, um, but when a, so, when a four-year private college costs a quarter million dollars, right? Like, and, and so you sort of think, well, over the next 30 years, um, you know, is 9% of your income going to pay off that quarter million with interest? And the answer is, yeah, probably it'll take, you know, might take 15, 20 years, but, you know, you'll you'll pay it back. And, and in any given year, it will never be more than that 9% of your income. So it, you won't have the problem of absolutely being crushed under the debt. On the other side, you sort of have to make a life choice. And the life choice is how do you feel about that possibility of Know, really committing that much of your future income year after year after year. And sort of an advantage of that is it would help students, I think, understand a little more what they're getting into. Um, and it does keep college loans open to people, right? Uh, but it's, um, but it, you know, it's not a problem. It's not a solution that doesn't have its own problems. My, what seems to be happening is that after 30 years, there's still going to be a substantial share of loans that haven't been repaid and that are going to need to be you know, written off right. at that time. So, so it's uh, not a perfect answer, but it's probably better than what we've got now. So what would happen to the economy if someone in Washington said, you know, used, used their power pen and said, yes, we're going to forgive all these loans? And you're well, all presumably done. the I'm, debt, um, what, ha- what happened to those loans is they're packaged up um, in financial securities and they're sold. So, um, you know, somebody out there has invested in them. Maybe it's a pension fund, maybe it's a hedge fund, maybe it's, uh, you know, um, it's just all the different large financial organizations that own financial instruments own packages of student loans. And so if you sort of say, well, 
you know, these are just not going to be repaid, <laughs> then you're imposing losses on on all of those on all of those folks who, in good faith, uh, went and got and bought these instruments. And my guess is you can't do that. That the uh, you know <laughs> you, the federal government would immediately be sued. Like it, w- it would essentially be seizing the wealth of those people. Um, who again made those loans and bought those financial things in good faith. So what I think actually the usual proposal is, although you know these are not spelled out, these are just things people sort of say loudly and never really describe any detail. But what would probably happen is the government would issue additional debt. The government would borrow an extra trillion and a half dollars and use that to pay back these financial instruments to buy them back from the people who currently own them. And so um, the way I usually think about it is one way or another, it probably works out to adding another trillion and a half to the national debt if you, if you is, went down that Which road. is going back another, you know, again, a trillion here, a trillion there, it adds up to real money. Um, but, <laughs> no, and the, that's right. Um, and, and the other, we're, we're, we're spending real money now. So. <laughs> well, and the other aspect of it, again, so someone ends up having to pay for this. So if the government doesn't bail out all those instruments, people are hurting themselves. It's their own pension funds. It's their own 401ks. It's their own savings that have invested in all of those those investment vehicles. No, that's right. And, you know, again, people sort of sometimes have this sense that there's, I don't know, there's someone like, um, you know, like Ebenezer Scrooge sitting there just kind of collecting money from people and stuffing it in a vault somewhere. But in the, you know, in the real world economy, um, financial instruments are, are, you know, they're sold and traded throughout the economy. And, and so the, you know, the money is not being loaned by, by Scrooge McDuck somewhere. It's being loaned by essentially people who, people through their pension fund or people through who've invested in this or that financial instrument. And, uh, and so, you know, you want your pension fund to be repaid <laughs> one way or another. Right. You know, you don't you don't want them just to be just to not get the money back that they loaned out. Well, later on, you don't have money when it comes time to retire. Yes, no, exactly. <laughs> There's, this is like again, it's just needing. I just want to reinforce to people that somewhere the money has to get paid, or somewhere it impacts a pocket. It's not free. That's that's the my biggest thing here. Um, let's talk about minimum wage. So right now the minimum wage is $7.25, which most people, full-time employees working on $7.25, 2,000 hours a year, cannot live on that. That's that's right, substandard. Right, below the poverty line. <laughs> um, but what's the implication of simply doubling that to $15 a year as is occurring in some places and as is being suggested in more places? Well, I, I think the, the, the hard thing about answering that question is that the U.S. economy is just enormous, and and it varies a lot, of course. And so, if you ask me, what what is the implication of having a fifteen dollar an hour federal minimum wage in, say, San Francisco or New York or Los Angeles? Um, the answer is it's probably not very big. Partly because they've already have local rules raising the minimum wage that high. And so the additional federal change wouldn't make any difference. I mean, it would just make federal what is already state. Yeah, but what um, about the what about the business people? What about the people that are paying those wages? So well, I have again, a budget if, in my if restaurant. You're already paying fifteen dollars an hour. No, no, no. Because it's the state rule. Then having it be the federal rule actually doesn't change it, right? No, no, I mean, no. That's not just, what I mean. It's just a different law. <laughs> so I'm a business owner, and I've and I've got to pay. You know, right now I've been paying a bunch of people seven dollars or ten dollars or whatever it is to work in my retail store or to work in my restaurant. 
and now suddenly sure. they and, want me to double that, and my sales aren't going up. It, it's going to make a, a real difference. And I guess the way I've sometimes said this in, in lectures or when I'm teaching is, uh, you know, it's, it's your point, I guess, repeated in a slightly different way. If you're going to pay the workers more, the money has to come from somewhere. Now, we can argue over where it comes from. We can say, for example, maybe it'll get passed along to consumers in the form of higher prices, or maybe it'll result in lower profits for the people earning those things, or maybe if people were paid more, there would be less job turnover, and some of it will make uh, some of it will mean that the workers are a little more efficient and more likely to stay with the job, or it could mean that employers will cut back on non-monetary things like. Uh, you know, like break times or other perks they might be offering, like a free sandwich or something like that. Um, or, or it could be, you know, that there'll be fewer jobs and more robots. And you can actually make up a list. I mean, I've seen lists like this of, you know, 10, 15, 20 different ways things can react, um, you know, some of which might seem more attractive than others. And the thing economists insist on overall is, is, is the point you've been making, the money has to come from somewhere. So we can then do analyses to try and find out where it comes from. Um, and in, in different contexts, where does it come from? And um, again, it makes a real big difference, whether it's $15 an hour that's going to be imposed on, um, I think it was, I looked up in the state of Mississippi, I believe the average wage for the entire state is um, less than $15 an hour. So well. you would be raising... You know, the state of Mississippi has, has the state sadly, changed. well, sadly, um, the state of Mississippi has other economic challenges. Well, it does. Yes. But, um, you know, one of the big reasons, going back to the Great Depression, why an enormous number of people from the South came up to the North and ended up living in you know, urban poverty was that's when we passed a national minimum wage. And part of the idea of the national minimum wage in the 1930s was we don't want to face low wage competition from the South. And so we won't let them have low-wage competition in the South. Um, and it led to extraordinary economic dislocation across the South. And so it's sort of like I, when people talk about raising the minimum wage, not for big eastern cities, but for, you know, the entire, um, you know, low-wage parts of the country, from the Mountain West, the Appalachia, the South, I feel like I've, I've you know, we've played this record before. <laughs> um, and a slow increase in the minimum wage over time you know, it, it's wages do creep up over time. A slow increase, you know, isn't going to have a huge effect. But you start doubling the minimum wage for places where wages are a lot lower to begin with, and the dislocation is going to be extraordinary and severe. Um, and uh, and that's, you know, that's a, you know, some places in big cities, yeah, you can deal with it because wages are already a lot higher, and some businesses will have trouble, but it'll sort of shake its way out. It's not going to shake its way out in places where the average wage is a lot lower. It's going to be disruptive at a very high level. So I saw a stat, I saw two interesting kind of conflicting pieces of information in your book. One was that for every 10% rise in the minimum wage, it equates to a 1% to 2% increase in unemployment. So yep. uh, for low-wage workers. Yeah. Right, which would mean that for you know a 90% increase or a 100% increase, as we're talking about here, then you would have a 10 to 12 percent, I guess, reduction. Yeah, again, among low-wage workers, uh, there's correct. some. It's always hard to extrapolate, right. but 
but yeah, you can get a real problem there. I, I'll give you the other side of it, which I think is interesting from, a, from an economic point of view. Imagine that you're not a full-time worker. Um, and a lot of people who are low-wage workers making minimum wage are not full-time workers. They're working some time. They're you know, reliant on other government benefits. And imagine that you know, at one point you're working, say, eight months a year, and you're making you know, seven bucks an hour. <laughs> um, and then let's imagine that, um, that you know, the minimum wage goes up to $15 an hour, and it's a lot harder for you to find work. So instead of working eight months a year, now you're working four months out of the year. Um, now, the reason I set up the example that way is that you're making twice as much per hour, but you're working half as many hours. So actually, your annual take-home pay hasn't changed. Right. Um, and and so, um, are you better off or worse off? Is the question. And and from one side, um, you're clearly better off because you now have four months free that you didn't have free before, <laughs> and uh, that's a good thing. Well, maybe to do side, what? Though, you're not building up any skills. You're not building up any experience. You're not putting yourself in a position where in the future, you're likely to get additional raises. And so you become more more marginal, easier to displace, less rooted in the labor market. And in that way, that's a, that's a negative thing. So there's so, a um, piece of earning. People need to earn, develop new skills to, to earn and, and higher wages. What we're really hoping for here is connection from people to the labor right. market, a lasting connection where skills increase over time and so you can earn, you can deserve higher pay you can right. earn higher pay because you really your productivity really justifies it you want to think about what do the bottom rungs of that job ladder look like and how are we getting people attached and 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 making making income early on and if you make those bottom rungs too too slippery and too uncertain you may not in the long run be doing people a lot of favors right now, it's funny, actually, you talked about the reduction in hours. I think Bernie Sanders fell into his own trap, where he wasn't, was, wasn't paying his own workers. Yeah, no, that was, a, that was a funny little and episode then, where, um, where, and it's been true for politicians for a long time, that an awful lot of people who are, you know, my daughter was a congressional intern, and she was unpaid, right? <laughs> um, yeah, and, but you can't and unpay an interns anymore. A lot of campaign workers yeah. and congressional interns have always been unpaid. So you sort of get these long speeches about, how can people exploit the workers while hiring an awful lot of people to uh, to be unpaid interns and unpaid help? And uh, and you know it's it's uh, paying people changes the incentives. Yeah. <laughs> it does. Well, so I, I think Bernie Sanders was paying them minimum wage or whatever, like seven bucks, and then he got caught not paying them the fifteen that he's touting. So and then, then he started the, saying, "Well, I, if I'm I paying have, you fifteen, I have cut to back have on hours. hours yes. because I can't, you know, I can't make this work." And I. I'm not altogether sure that, you know, just to be, uh, you know, I, I don't have a problem with hiring unpaid people to volunteer for campaigns. That seems yes. to me like volunteer sector is right. an important thing. But I do think that if you're going to be um, preachy about how no one should take advantage and it's a gross unfairness, well, then you better make sure you're behaving according to what you say is your standard of fairness. Yes, and, well, uh, and I don't even... Sanders got hung up a little there. This <laughs> isn't my pro-Sanders pro or anti-Sanders. It's simply a perfect illustration of exactly the economic impact. Now, on the flip side, one other tidbit on this, and then you, you and I could talk forever, um, that 98%, so if, so if 10% rise in increase, um, uh, rise in wages leads to a 1% to 2% 
reduction in employment, 98% of the people did get more money, which theoretically now they have more money in their pocket to pump back into right. the economy. Right. And so, again, uh, you know, if, if, if you get to keep your job as a minimum wage worker and you get to work the same number of hours, you personally come out ahead. Um, now, um, again, there may be other trade-offs there that, um, that we need to think seriously about, like, uh, you know, workers will say, well, yeah, I got this higher minimum wage, but it used to be that my boss didn't worry too much about us punching in and punching out, and now, you know, he really insists that we do that. Or, you know, it used to be that we got this free perk, you know, we could, you know, I'm working at the restaurant and we could have lunch, but now they started charging for the lunch or they've, you know, done this or done that. So I, I think there are all these adjustments Sometimes I think in the book I refer to this as the law of many margins, that there are many different margins where adjustments can happen. And it, once you say, well, the pay is going to be this, there's going to be a bunch of other adjustments that happen depending on the workplace and the relationships and the possibility for machinery and the, you know, all the different things that can happen. Yes. Yeah. Well, and I promise you that as a boss, if I pay you more money, yeah, I expect more out of you. There's yeah, no question right. about it. Right. And, uh, and it's, it's just, you know, I'm going to say, well, okay, if I have to pay everybody $15 an hour, I'm going to figure out a way to get $15 an hour of work out of everybody. Yes. And, well, and, and that may be a different work environment than the one you were used to. It's true. And uh, I may have to cut corners in other places. Because, again, my sales didn't magically go up as a result of paying you more money. Yeah, and I think, you know, again, depending on where you are and what you're doing, there's, you know, there is some evidence that over time, um, some of that can be passed forward to consumers in higher prices. And then you sort of have an argument about, well, you're trying to help low-income workers by um, getting them higher wages, but what we might be doing is driving up some of the prices of what low-income people are buying. And, um, and so, you know, these, again, the the economy is a big system for coordinating all these production and consumption things. Yes. You can't just pick one part of the system and say, I just want that to be really big. Yeah. Uh, it, it, all sort of, it all sort of ties together. And I think that also, again, it's critical for people to understand all those different pieces. None of it is happening in a vacuum. And that the levers, you push on one and then it impacts something else and it impacts something else. And that I've heard people say that you, when you think of the economy, you have to think about it a little bit like a spider web. That if you tug on one spot, there are ripples all over the place. Yeah. And you can't just tug on one spot and assume everything else stays the same. Yes, exactly. All right, one last question because we're running so long. But <laughs> <laughs> I know we could go, as I said, there's so many issues around this. And like, we can do this talk. again sometime. We could do that. <laughs> That'll <good>. be so <laughs> fun. All right, so let me ask you this. So there's a lot of talk right now about looming recession. And the markets uh -huh. were up and down and up and down last week. China, China's on, China's off, recession's here, recession's not. So in your professional econo economist p opinion, how looming is a recession and how healthy is the economy? Well, um, so our, our ideas about causes of a recession fall into different categories. One, one idea, for example, is recessions die of old age. They just sort of go on for a while and they kind of falter. And it turns out that when you look at recessions, there's no particular evidence for the dying of old age theory. Older upswings are no more likely to end than younger upswings, historically speaking. What seems to kill upswings at some point and cause recessions is, is what they call a negative shock. <laughs> you know, something bad and big that happens. 
and so it could be a stock market meltdown. It could be um, the housing prices melting down. It could be um, dramatically higher interest rates. But there's some shock that happens. And but that doesn't shock something is what pushes you into recession? But so doesn't something kick that off? Is, I'm sorry. What, what, Do, the question is, what's the shock? Yeah, doesn't now, something kick off that shock? shock? Right. And um, and the big one at the moment that everybody's talking about, of course, is is international trade topics. And I think um, it's been a while since we had a trade shock which was big enough to literally tip the world <laughs> into recession. One of the interesting things about both the U.S. and China, which I think is not always well recognized, is the U.S. is actually much more insulated from international trade than most other countries in the world. And the reason is because we have an enormous domestic market. And so a lot of our trade is internal. You know, it's it's New York to Kansas and Texas to Washington and, and, you know, back and forth around the country. And so we're actually much less tied into world markets than a, a smaller economy in the middle of Europe or in Latin America or in Africa. Um, and so for us, we're in a way better positioned to handle a trade shock than a lot of countries are. Um, we haven't been tipped into a recession by a trade shock. I, I mean, I can't think of a time in the last, I mean, arguably you can talk a little bit about the Great Depression and what was involved there, but it's, it's usually not enough to tip the U.S. economy into a recession. It's enough to slow us down. It's enough to cause pain. It's enough to make the trade war economically hurtful because, you know, all kinds of war are, are hurtful. War is always lose-lose, and, um, but, you, you know, you fight wars because you hope it comes to some better outcome at the end. So I, I guess overall, my sense is that the economy's really quite healthy. You know, if you're, if you're, if you're not happy with you know unemployment under four percent and inflation under two percent and no recession in the last decade, you're forgetting how bad things have sometimes been, even as recently as 2007 to 2009. But you know, back in the 1970s, back in the 1930s, this is this is a pretty good time. Doesn't mean it's perfect. There's always issues we don't we don't live in utopia but i at least right now don't see a giant shock out there which is going to actually take us into negative territory um you know i i could be wrong i've been wrong before but but if i had to bet we're we're going to be tottering on through for the next year or two barring some other big shock coming along that we haven't seen yet i'm going to end it on that good news (laughs) <laughs> thank you so much. <laughs> All right, Tim Taylor. Yeah, pleasure to talk to you. Oh, thank you so much. So Ed, your books on Amazon, The Instant Economist, awesome book, just a, a great primer. Anyone wants to listen to you on The Teaching Company, fabulous lectures. And thank you so much, Tim Taylor, timothytaylor.net. You're great. Thanks. I'm talking to Timothy Taylor, economist, author, and teacher about the economic impact of some major political promises that are being made with regard to healthcare, college loans, minimum wages, and more. Understanding the relationship between the headlines and your pocketbook is vital to making smart financial choices for your life, and there's no one better to explain the considerations than Tim Taylor. Tim's just one example of the types of leading experts featured in our flagship publication, Bottomline Personal. Bottomline Personal is filled with actionable advice from all aspects of your life, including protecting yourself from scammers, financial planning, great gift ideas, navigating the healthcare system, insurance snafus, smart tax strategies, improving your relationships, and so much more. 
Bottom Line Personal has been helping people lead more informed and vibrant lives for over 40 years with our actionable and double fact-checked advice. Subscribe today and get a free bonus book, Bottom Line's Best Bets, full of some of the greatest tips from our experts of all time. Just go to bottomlineinc.com forward slash expert podcast. That's bottomlineinc.com forward slash expert podcast.